Please turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We are working our way through the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount as we work through the Gospel of Matthew together. And I'm going to go ahead and read all the Beatitudes. It's great to hear them all together. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we just have left in the Beatitudes, verses 10 through 12, and I've decided to break this into two parts. So we're going to cover just verse 10 today, and Lord willing, verses 11 and 12 next Sunday. Let's quickly review, because this beatitude, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This beatitude is the first beatitude that isn't actually anything that we are doing, per se. It's something that's being done to us. Up until now, it's characteristics of the kingdom people. It's those who are true Christians. Here is what they look like. Here is what they act like. Here is who they are. And now this is the first one that sort of turns it a little bit. This is how those people are going to be treated in the world that we live in. So let's just review very briefly. It's good to keep all these together in our mind. Verse 3, poor in spirit means that we accept that we are spiritually bankrupt and we cannot save ourselves. We have sinned grievously against God and left to ourselves, we are completely lost. Those are the people that begin to understand the grace of God. Number two, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn encompasses, first of all, mourning for our sin and the sins of those we love. It also probably includes mourning just for the general brokenness that sin has brought into this world that we grieve uh, over, and the Lord brings comfort. Those who know that they are sinful and are poor in spirit, those that mourn over their sinfulness and all that they have done, they begin to show an attitude of meekness, a kind of gentleness and a humble demeanor that comes from someone who knows that by sheer grace have I been rescued from myself. Next, new hungers, new desires begin to grow in the heart. These are desires now, miraculously, for righteousness, desires for holiness. I told you the story of a friend of mine who was a nominal Christian, you know, Christian by name only. There wasn't much going on in his life spiritually. Scott and I were in the room when this guy was brought to Christ. He was weeping when he heard a sermon. Uh, his life changes the next day or a couple days later. He shows up at our house, and what's he doing? He's blasting a sermon in his truck speakers. 
This was unusual behavior for this individual. Okay, up till then, I had never heard him do that. What was happening was he had become poor in spirit. He had mourned over his sin. He wept in front of us. Suddenly, what was happening? A meekness was growing in him, and there was a desire, a hunger for righteousness. Suddenly, his desires were beginning to change. Next is mercifulness. Because we have been shown infinite mercy, we can begin to show bits of mercy to others. We begin to show more and more mercy to others because we have been shown such mercy. Our hearts become more pure, and we want to see God more clearly, pushing aside the sin in our life by God's help. And then last week, what did we talk about? Peacemaking. That when there has been relational fracturing that has gone on due to my sin, I need to do everything I can to repent and confess and apologize and try to make things right. And even if it's mostly someone else's fault, we should still do everything we can to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us, because God made peace with us, we must make peace with those we can make peace with. And now finally, if that's who we are by grace and not perfectly in this world, but if that stumblingly is who we are, the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, those who love God's righteousness, if that's marking us more and more as we grow as Christians, listen, the more we look like kingdom people in the world that we live in, there's no nice way to say this, the more we will be disliked. In certain ways and in certain relationships, it will be unavoidable. And that is what today's sermon is about. Again, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think I had ever stopped in my life to think about this till I was prepping for these sermons. Peacemaking comes right before persecuted. I just have thought about that the last few weeks. That's amazing. Those who are we're trying to make peace, but because we love the truth, and the truth is not loved by the world so often, as much as we try to be meek and loving and kind and gracious and even apologizing and confessing sin, at the end of the day, if we hold to what this book teaches, the world in different ways and in, to different degrees will hate, oppose, and persecute these kingdom people described in this passage. And so today, what, what I did to prepare for this sermon, I have one sentence, okay? So how do you prepare for a sermon based on a single sentence? What I, did, I, I just got as many texts on the subject I could find in the Bible. I, just, I, I got a whole list of these texts, and we're going to walk through a bunch of them. And I started organizing them based on different points that they make in these texts and different themes. And so I think I'm going to let the Bible just talk, and we're going we're gonna to see why this happens and what we can do about it. So, so uh, today's uh, sermon really is going to have three, three points. Number one, why does the world hate real righteousness? Why does the world hate real righteousness? We're not talking about self-righteousness. We're talking about authentic godliness. Why does the world hate real righteousness? Number two, how does the world mask its hatred of righteousness? That's an interesting thought there. How does the world mask, cover, its hatred for righteousness. And number three, what is our comfort in persecution? What is our comfort in persecution? And again, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will cover more of the comforting aspect of this in more detail, I hope. 2 Timothy 3.12, I'm sure many of us know this verse. Listen to what it says to all Christians. Paul says, indeed, all 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Sometimes persecution comes with a raised hand. Sometimes it comes with a raised eyebrow. Sometimes it comes with actual physical violence. Sometimes it comes with a cutting word at work from a fellow employee, right? So it's going to look different in different places, but it's, it's a guarantee. The more we are acting like Christ in this world, the more we will experience different kinds of persecution. And before I even get into the three points, let me just mention this. Remember last week I said what peacemaking does not mean? I'm going to do that again here. What, what, what are we not saying when we say blessed are those who are persecuted for, for righteousness? We are not saying uh, there is blessedness for Christians who are persecuted for unrighteousness' sake. You say, that's obvious. Well, let's, it needs to be said, okay? For, a lot of Christians do a lot of stupid things, and they get in trouble for it, and that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about sins that Christians commit and receive uh, negative criticisms for. So, you won't be able to turn to all these texts today. There's a lot of them I have listed, but 1 Peter 4.15 says this, but let none of you suffer, he's talking to churches, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, don't let sinfulness be what causes persecution and suffering. Also in 1 Peter 2.19, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So from the very beginning, is every time a Christian is treated negatively, is that automatically what Jesus is blessing here? No, it is not. When we sin and we receive a punishment for it, that is, that is not what Jesus is referring to here. He's talking about persecution for righteousness' sake. So let's, let's break that down into these three points. Number one, why does the world hate real righteousness? And there's a lot of sub-points. If you're taking notes, I'm not sure what to tell you, but you can try your best. Uh, number one, righteous, so why does the world hate real righteousness? Number one, righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous deeds. I'm going to give you a little help on this one, okay? I worked on alliteration, which I never do. Are you ready for this? You look so ready. Are you ready? Here we go. Righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous, and I got three words with D, deeds, dogmas, and desires, okay? So, righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous deeds, unrighteous dogmas, that means beliefs, and unrighteous desires. So, deeds, dogmas, desires, that's what righteousness exposes in the world. Okay, let's walk through these. Unrighteous deeds. How does righteousness expose the world's unrighteous deeds or actions? 1 John 3, listen to these carefully. Remember Cain and Abel. This is what John says, 1 John 3, 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. For we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, we all know the story. It's infamous, everybody, non-Christians, everyone's heard this story. My secular English class, we had to study this story. I mean, everybody's heard the story. But listen to what John says about Cain killing Abel. This is fascinating. And why did he murder him? I love it when Scripture says why something happens. Why did Cain murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. You hear that? Righteousness expose, exposes the unrighteous deeds of the world. Cain was doing, in his mind, just fine. 
He was giving some of his crop to God. His brother Abel was giving the first of his flock to God. But Abel, Hebrews tells us, was doing it from faith and Cain not from faith, but out of, a, out of some kind of works mindset. And when he saw that God was blessing his brother's offering and not his own, he felt jealousy, anger, and bitterness towards his brother because what? His own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness accentuated his unrighteousness. Do you get this? You know, if you're in, I've said this before, if you're in a dimly lit room and everyone's got stains on their shirts, we might look like we have moderately clean clothing. But if a 100-watt bulb comes into the room, if you've got this thing, you, you, you have a really bright bulb coming in, what happens? All the stains on every shirt become much more apparent. They become much clearer. When Jesus walked in as the light of the world, He, exposed, he exposes the stains. And man, unless I am in a repentant frame of mind, I don't like that. I don't want my deeds to be exposed as evil. Cain's, Cain became angry at his brother because his deeds were righteous, his brother, and his own were not. So there's something about that that exposes to others. And then John adds in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, don't be surprised that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Example number two of the unrighteous deeds being exposed, John the Baptist preaches and what does he do? He preaches against the sexual immorality of Herod, who is a king. Let's think about that for a second. You know you're in trouble when you're doing that, right? You're preaching against the king. And here's what Mark 6 tells us. For Herod sent and seized John and bound him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. And John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, that's the woman in the, in the scenario with Herod, had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. Why? Because John's righteousness, what? Exposed the unrighteous deed of Herod and Herodias. So she hated John and wanted him dead. And Herod also hated John and was embarrassed and wanted him put in prison. And then, as you know, later, because of Herodias' prompting of his, her daughter, the king sent the executioner in order to bring John's head on a platter. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, listen to this, at the end of Stephen's speech, Stephen is again un exposing the unrighteous deeds. And I, I should add before I go on, Herod actually, it says here in this text that Herod uh, thought of John as a righteous man. It's an important point. That's what he did not like. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, he says, remember to the crowd that is angry at him, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. They don't like the righteous one. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, it's about God's righteousness, as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then after they kill him, it says, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church. All right, point, sub-point number two, righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous dogmas. So deeds, dogmas, that means their beliefs. Acts chapter 6, same guy, Stephen, just rewinding one chapter. Here's what, here's what happens with Stephen. Listen to this. They, so they're, they're, they're debating Stephen, the, the Jewish people who don't trust Christ, they're debating Stephen. It says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So as, as Stephen preaches truth and righteousness, 
their false worldview can't handle it. They can't respond accurately. They don't know what to say. He's proving from the Old Testament that the Messiah must suffer. Look, Jesus is the Messiah. He suffered. He's the son of David. They don't have a better response. They don't have a way to combat him in argument. So once you're losing the argument, what do they choose to do? They secretly instigated men who said, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So you, you get this? When the world cannot win the argument, it resorts to lies, deception, coercion, threats, and in worst cases, violence, right? That, that, that's what we see. That's, what, that's where this ends up, that's where it ends up going. Because the righteousness exposes the unrighteous dogma, the beliefs. Acts chapter 9, Saul, who just approved of an execution, is now a Christian. Astonishing. And now that he's a Christian, the first thing he does, he starts preaching Jesus in Damascus, right? And he goes to Jerusalem. And listen to what happens as soon as Paul, Saul, is converted. Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he's just proving the truth. And what happens? When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Once he was exposing their unrighteous dogmas, their beliefs, and they were being proven false, they had to resort to something. And what do they do? They move towards coercion, or in this case, violence. Subpoint number three, righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous desires. So deeds, dogmas, desires. Righteousness exposes the world's unrighteous desires. Now, I'm going to take a familiar passage, but listen to what I'm going to try to show you here. We all know, I think, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and for training in righteousness, okay? So, so think about this. In the text that says all Scripture is inspired by God, it mentions it's there to train us in righteousness explicitly, right? So righteousness is attached to the Bible right there. Then listen to what it says a few verses later. Paul says to Timothy, preach this word, preach it. That leads, this word that leads to righteousness, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Why? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Why not? Because sound teaching leads to righteousness. And if I don't want righteousness in my desires, then I don't want sound teaching in my ears. You get that? If I don't want righteousness in my desires, in my heart, then I don't want to hear it in my ears. So now they have itching ears, the audience, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to what? Suit their own passions, to tell them what their flesh and their sin nature wants to hear. Not true righteousness, but some kind of false righteousness to justify their sinful desires. And that's why false teachers exist. Do you know that? False teachers exist so that my flesh can be gratified and not slain. That's why false teachers exist. My flesh can be coddled. My flesh can be kept and blessed by God. I can baptize my sinful nature and bless it with false doctrine so that I can not feel bad about the sinful impulses in my heart. That's the underpinning desire for false doctrine. And the very next thing Paul says, he says, they will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. And then he says, as for you, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. These things fit together. John 17, the high priestly prayer before the night before, the night of Gethsemane. Jesus says, I have given them your word, Father, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
Romans 8, Jerry's got me think about this over, over, over the years, uh, verses 7 and 8. Listen to this. For the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is, a, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's desires. My desires are in opposition to God in my flesh. For it, for it the flesh, does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if I am in love with what is not right and righteousness and truth is taught, either I repent and believe or I say, get this out of here. I want nothing to do with it. So righteousness exposes ungodly, worldly desires, which is one reason why it is hated. Subpoint number four, pursuing righteousness often involves losing friends, whereas opposing righteousness can win you friends in this world. Okay, so pursuing righteousness could involve losing certain friends, but being against righteousness could win you friends. Here's some interesting text. Acts chapter 12. Herod again. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Remember, he kills James, one of the twelve, with the sword. And he says, when he, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, the Jewish leaders, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. You see, he's opposing righteousness and he's winning friends, right? They're, they're loving him. So he's, okay, if, if you like it, if, if I'm getting popularity from killing James, then I'll get more popularity if I also arrest and kill Peter. So he arrests Peter. Now the Lord lets Peter escape from jail. How about this one? Pilate and Herod, remember when they become best friends on the day of the crucifixion? Remember that? Luke 23, Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So he sends Jesus disfigured back to Pilate with a, with a mock clothes on. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. That's what it says. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. There are certain friendships that opposing righteousness will give you in this world. And there's a certain cost to friendship if you truly embrace righteousness, not because you're a jerk, but because true righteousness is offensive to the flesh. It's offensive to my flesh. 1 Peter 4, listen to this. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. What's that lifestyle? What's the opposite of righteousness? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They, they mock you. you. We know this, don't we? You, you know what it's like to have a group of, whether it's classmates, friends, co-workers, who say, come on, come with us. It's going to be fun. Come on, come on. And you're going, I can't go. And they're going, what? Like, this is going to be awesome. And you're going, I, I, I can't. And in that moment, they go, all right, what's wrong with you? I'm, I'm going. It's going to be great. We're going to be out till 2 in the morning. It's going to be awesome. Come on. And th there they go. But th they can't understand why you would not go with them. Subpoint so number five, the gospel message of righteousness humbles human pride. It humbles human pride. We've heard this. The gospel says God chose those who are low and despised in the world, even those who are not. Why? To bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
Listen, by nature, all of us, no exceptions, want to boast in our own accomplishments and talents and abilities. Our resume is our righteousness. It's our identity. We worked really hard for this resume. Look at all that I have done. Look at how my kids turned out. Look how much money I made. Look at the size of my house. Look at the, look at the degrees that I've accumulated. Look at all the popularity I've gotten out in the business world. Look at all the things that I have done. This is my righteousness. And so if at rock bottom, my, my identity and my righteousness is tied to what I have done, then I'm boasting in me. Listen, this is how the world works. This is how we all naturally work. We want to find pride in what we've done. And the gospel absolutely flattens human pride and says, your salvation, which is infinitely glorious, has absolutely zero to do with you. It's entirely by grace. It's welfare stamps, right? It's food stamps. This, this, this is the way, that, hey, you understand, there, there, you, you, people uh, in those kinds of conditions talk about how difficult it is to use food stamps. You know, this, this, it, it can feel a certain way. You know, you kind of feel a little bit of shame sometimes. People talk about that. Imagine this. All the good that you have is completely free grace that you have not deserved or earned. Do you understand how that flattens human pride and achievement? It gets to the point where Paul says, listen, if you want to boast about fleshly accomplishments, I could beat any of you in any game. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was circumcised on the eighth day. As far as human righteousness goes, I was keeping the law as best you could. But listen, when I saw Jesus, I realized all of it was refuse and rubbish. King James says it was dung. It was scubala is the Greek word. The word for, for manure, essentially. My, my accomplishments were nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And now I just I boast in the righteousness I have in Christ that came through faith by grace. It's God's righteousness through Christ given to me. It is not something I've earned. And now I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to fellowship in his sufferings because this is awesome. But to get to that point, we've got to relinquish the idol of self to say it's not boasting in me, it's boasting in Him, which is a fundamentally different way of viewing the world. So that could be offensive. If someone doesn't want to let go of that, that's going to be hard, a hard message to hear. Subpoint number six, it may never end. Subpoint number six, the gospel message of righteousness, it, not only does it humble human pride, but thereby it, it, it exposes you to persecution. Listen, because the gospel humbles you, to the dust, that very message exposes you to further persecution. You say, how is that? Listen, just follow this train of thought. Galatians 4 and 5 and 6. Listen to this. Paul says, 4.16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Then he says, now you brothers, like Isaac, Abraham's son, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, remember Ishmael mocked Isaac? So it is now. We are like Isaac, and we are persecuted by the world. But then Paul says it more clearly. Listen to this, Galatians 5.11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, in other words, my accomplishments plus Jesus, so you're still holding on to your accomplishments for your identity, if I preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Do you hear that? If you add human achievement to the gospel, the offense of the gospel is gone because I still get to hold on to my human achievement. It's Jesus plus me that saves me. But Paul says, no, if you get rid of all human achievement, including circumcision, Mosaic law, and you only cling to the cross, you invite the persecution that comes from this humility that says only Jesus will I boast in. 
He goes on further, Galatians 6, 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in your flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Why? Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But the cross won't let you hold on to human achievement. You've got to renounce your righteousness, your so-called righteousness, to have the righteousness of Jesus. Then he says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. Paul knows it's a whole nother life to be living, boasting only in the cross. Okay, second main point of the message. Are you ready? We're out of the subpoints. Second main point. How does the world mask its hatred of righteousness? How does the world mask its hatred of righteousness? This is so right in front of us in the news. I, I'm just going to mention this as a, as a current example. There are many you could, you could say. A couple months ago, I did a video on our YouTube channel. You can look up if, about this if you want. But a couple months ago, uh, there was an attempt. Uh, uh, Chuck Schumer and whatnot tried to pass through uh, Congress uh, a, a, um, in response to the leaked draft about Roe v. Wade possibly being overturned. Uh, Chuck Schumer tried to pass. Or they had a vote on legislation in Congress. And the, the legislation, if it would have gotten the yes, if it would have gotten enough votes, what the legislation would have done, if I understand it correctly, is it would have granted full abortion rights for all women in all 50 states from conception until birth, no questions asked. That, that was the legislation. It hit the Senate floor. And it was named the Women's Health Protection Act. That's what I mean when I say, how does the world mask its hatred of righteousness? You, you see the mask in this particular moment? You've got something that is pure evil. We want to legalize killing children in the womb up until nine months, up to 40 weeks, anywhere in our country. We, we want to vote on that. And we're going to call it the not let, let's kill babies at any point in the womb act. We're going to call it the women's health protection because we're protecting a lot of health here as we kill a million a year of babies. You understand? So, so what's going on? Let's look at biblical examples of this kind of thing. Real righteousness can be opposed by False righteousness. Real righteousness can be opposed by false righteousness. John 12, this is the week of Jesus' death. Remember, Mary has broken that expensive alabaster flask of ointment and poured it all over Jesus' feet as she wipes it with her hair. This beautiful act of worship. Because she says, listen, this may not make any sense common sense wise to give $30,000 worth of ointment and just waste it on Jesus, but it's not wasted because worship is never wasted. I, it's like she knows he raised my brother from the dead. What could I possibly do? He's forgiven me my sins. What, what is too high a cost to pay to worship Jesus? His, her answer was, I'm going to take the most valuable thing I got in the house. That, that thing on the, on, that sits over there on top of that shelf that no one touches. You make sure it never gets broken open. You don't, this is a family heirloom type of thing worth a year's salary. And what does she do? She wastes it all in five minutes. Why? Because worship is never wasted. She's poor, this beautiful act of love for Jesus. Let me read part of it. John 12, 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. It came from India, I believe, the nard, I think. It was thousands of miles away, very expensive. She anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples... He who was about to betray Jesus said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Do you hear? He's cloaking unrighteousness with righteousness language. Do you think this happens? Judas goes, wow, this is a waste. We could have given a couple of years' salary to the poor. I mean, there's poor people everywhere. Of course, he controls the money bag. He would have taken a lot of that and put it in his own pocket. He doesn't care about the poor. He cares about the money. He's about to betray Jesus for money, the opposite of what Mary does, giving all of her wealth to Jesus in that moment, Judas does. He betrays Jesus for some silver coins. Judas uses language of caring for the poor, righteousness language to mask unrighteousness. We need to be aware of any of us doing this. This is any of us is susceptible to doing this. We can any of us be tempted to use biblical righteousness language to mask selfishness and sin in our hearts. We need to be very aware of that. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus rebukes that kind of masking uh, your unrighteousness with false language. How about this one? Acts chapter 16, remember in Philippi, we covered this a year or so ago. Remember the demon-possessed slave girl is being used by her owners to predict things because the demon has knowledge, and they're making money off this poor girl? What happens? Paul turned and said to the Spirit in this girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was lost, they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them to the marketplace before the rulers, they brought in the magistrates, and they said, they took away our source of money. No, they didn't say that. They said, that's what they really would have said if they were being honest. They said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. Right? They're using the false language of the time to mask their love of unrighteousness or of money. I'll skip other examples of that, but there are, there are more that we could look at. So let me summarize what we've said so far. Most fundamentally, the world persecutes the righteous and opposes righteousness in its deeds and dogmas because its desires are enslaved by the love of sin. This is where we all were. Let me give you two texts. Right after John 3, 16, it says this. This is the judgment. Remember the light metaphor I used? The light has come into the world, Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. One more. I promise there's a light at the end of this dark tunnel, okay? But there's one more. Ephesians 4. Now listen to this one. I think this one's really fascinating about how your deeds and your beliefs, your dogmas, are tied to your unholy desires. Listen to this. Ephesians 4.17. Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Listen. In the futility of their minds, that's the dogma part, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. The desires are at the bottom. All right, let's turn the corner toward the light at the end of this tunnel. Point number three, the main point of the sermon, number three, what is our comfort in persecution? And again, next Sunday will be much more on this, I hope. Number one, what is our hope, what is our comfort in persecution? 
Number one, it is always part of God's plan. Now, that sounds almost trite, but that's absolutely fundamental and true. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 to 4. Paul says, Let no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Our afflictions are part of God's plan for us. Number two, this is a sub-point here, God will bring justice against all acts of persecution that Christians endure. Let me turn you to a passage. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. The parable of the persistent widow. So God will bring justice against all acts of persecution that Christians endure. Luke chapter 18. First eight verses, I'll read this for us. Luke 18 verse 1. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Listen to the application. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Hear me on this. When you experience these persecutions, whether they be small seemingly or large in scale, the only way you and I will ever be able to respond graciously and kindly in those moments is when we believe a couple of different things. One is this, we know eventually no injustice will go unpunished. God is going to bring justice to all injustice in the world, and we can trust that He will bring it in His good time either through the conversion of our persecutor or through the judgment of our persecutor. God will bring justice to those people. So Paul says in Romans 12, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And at the last day, the Lord will wipe away the tears from our eyes. We will know the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. And let me, let me come to a close here on this last thought. This is crucial. It's for, for everything that we've said today, this point is crucial. So please listen carefully. Apart from God's intervention in our life, every single one of us would be a persecutor, not a persecuted person. All of us, left to ourselves, would be loving the darkness rather than the light, and we would be mocking and belittling what is righteous. Spurgeon said, you who are great in the, in the battle for truth, you who use your minds in this great battle of truth, you would have been as great in your fight for error had God's grace not made you to differ. Oh, great Christian, you, would, you are a great sinner, he says. It's only God's grace 
that has intervened. So let's close here. Turn with me another time to 1 Timothy chapter 1. To your right, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Since Paul is the ultimate persecutor turned persecuted, let's listen to his testimony. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you today are, are listening to this and maybe you would not consider yourself a Christian, maybe you even have said critical things towards God's Word and towards Christians in past weeks. Listen, please do not think that there is no hope. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, I have incredible, true, good news for you. God loves to save people who hate His church and persecute His church. The man who wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books killed Christians for a living for a period of years before the Lord radically converted him. Perhaps he became the greatest Christian in all of human history, and he was the greatest opponent to the Christian faith in early church history in those early years. Listen, no matter what you have done in opposition to God and His people, no matter how much you have mocked God and His Word, God will save you and forgive you right now in this moment by His sheer grace through the mercy of Christ and the blood of Christ. All of us left to ourselves would be just like the Apostle Paul in his lost state. And yet God has opened the floodgates of mercy, and He is offering to you full and free forgiveness, a right standing with a holy God purchased by Christ, something that you pay nothing for because Christ paid it all, and it was finished when He died on the cross and breathed His last. And you can receive that right now by simple, childlike faith that turns away from trusting in your own accomplishments, your own resume, your own so-called moral achievements, and turns and looks alone to Christ for His finished work on the cross. And as we talk about the cross, turn one last time to 1 Corinthians 11 because on that night when Jesus was betrayed, we are told in 1 Corinthians 11, these words, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. for I received from the Lord what I, also what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, 
and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This, this is the incredible thing here. If you know the Lord, the Lord has rescued you from yourself and He has changed you. He's given you that poverty of spirit to know you don't deserve anything but condemnation, and yet you've been given the future of glorification in Christ. And these elements are, are symbols that represent Christ's body and His blood to be physical, tangible reminders of the costly love that Christ has given for His bride. If you are not a believer yet, we would ask you that you talk to the Lord even right now. Repent even now of your sins and trust Christ, but please do not come forward for these elements. These elements are for those who have already come to know the Lord as Savior. And if you are not walking in unrepentant sin as a believer, then please take a moment to pray, and then you can come forward after I am done praying to partake of these elements and return to your seat. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, I do pray that we would live in such a way, not that we would be persecuted for our sins or for being a murderer or a thief or a meddler, as Peter says. I pray we wouldn't be self-righteous. I pray our attitude would not be to be mean-spirited or proud. God, I pray we would be humbled to the dirt by the gospel. We'd be affirmed to the sky by your love for us in Christ. And God, I pray we could turn the other cheek when we are mistreated, that we could genuinely respond like Christ, who on the cross, as He was hanging by nails, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, help us to be like Stephen, who was, as he was being stoned to death, prayed, Father, do not hold this sin against them, and he breathed his last. God, help us to model to some degree the radical astonishing love Jesus has even for His worst of enemies, like the Apostle Paul when he was still Saul the persecutor. And God, I pray that You would help us to live in a way that would, and I, I say this truly, God, I pray that we would experience the blessedness of being persecuted for our faith, because for them it is the kingdom of heaven. God, I, I, I don't ask that we walk unnecessarily into persecution, but when it comes, Lord, I, I pray that we would be honoring You in those moments, and that we would respond not like the world does, but as Christ does. So be with us now, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.